Here's what I came to say to you this morning in a sentence. Your words, changed by his word, can change the world. Now, I've been a preacher for 30 years, and I have seen the power of words. And I believe that the most powerful place on the planet is a pulpit. Now, most people would laugh at that sentence, pulpit. Have you heard the story about the the preacher and the elder and the deacon that went out into the woods deer hunting? Huge buck crossed the clearing. The preacher and the elder both raised their rifles at the exact same time, fired simultaneously. Buck went down. They don't know which one of them shot the deer. The deacon said, wait right here, men. I'll go run over. I'll check. I'll tell you who shot the deer. Runs across the clearing, bends over, checks, stands back up, says, it's the preacher's buck. The preacher shot the deer. The elder says, well, how can you tell? How, how do you know? And the deacon says, well, I can, I can see right here. The bullet went in one ear and right out the other. <laughs> and that's what a lot of people think about preaching. It's a punchline. It's a joke. Preaching and it doesn't make any real difference in the real world. The most powerful place on the planet is not a pulpit. But of course, the Bible paints a completely different picture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said this, that God in his wisdom chose the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Did you hear that? God chose the foolishness of preaching to save the world. It's Proverbs 18, verse 21 that says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And I can, I can tell you when I'm reminded of this the most, it's when I'm preaching a bad sermon. There are some Sunday mornings, I'm just telling you, I can preach and I can tell it's not working today. <laughs> I'm not connecting. This is, this is not communicating. I, I have a friend, uh, when we were in Bible college together, one uh, Sunday morning, he went out to this little bitty church to go preach and he could tell that morning the sermon was a clunker. I mean, it was just kind of a homiletical belly flop, boom, right there on his face. It was not very good. And, uh, and yet church people are super nice, all right? I mean, they knew it was bad, he knew it was bad, but they're nice. And so afterwards, he's standing back at the door and he's shaking everybody's hands as, as they're leaving church that morning. And, and the folks are saying, oh, nice job, nice job, nice sermon, nice job. One lady said, nice try. <laughs> I have preached my share of nice try sermons. And on those mornings when I can tell, man, it is just not working today. On those days, I just kind of want to get done as quick as I can and go home and, and I'll try again next week. But God, in his great celestial sense of humor, will often give me my best response to my worst sermons, just to kind of remind me that it's not about me, you know. And so I'm, I'm preaching away and it, it's just, it's not working. And so we're only singing one verse of that invitation song. But lo and behold, during the invitation song, folks are walking down the aisle and people are making decisions for Christ. Here's, here's some lady, you know, and she's, she's shaking my hand and she's saying, oh, you, you have no idea how that touched me. And I'm thinking, you're right. I have no idea how that touched you. And, and yet, and yet, if I am honest, I do know how that touched her because if my words have been shaped by God's word, the promise of Isaiah chapter 55 is this. God says, my word which goes out from my mouth will not return to me void or empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. And I am telling you that after 30 years of preaching, I have seen, I have seen people choose not to commit suicide after all because they heard a sermon. I have heard I have seen people who decided to give their marriage one last try because they heard 
a sermon. I've seen people give up lucrative careers to go be missionaries. People break off ungodly relationships with boyfriend, girlfriend, people who became foster parents or who gave their money or who shared Christ with a neighbor because they heard a sermon. And I've seen people find hope in the midst of grief and comfort in the midst of pain, guidance in the midst of confusion, power in the midst of weakness, all because in the bumbling, stumbling, fumbling words of a preacher, somehow they heard the word of God. And in my preaching classes, I tell my guys that when they get up on a Sunday morning with their Bible in their hand, physical, oh, physical eyes may just see some guy getting up to monologue for 30 minutes from some old book on a sleepy Sunday morning, but spiritual eyes, they see something else completely because at that very moment when he stands up with that Bible in his hand, I am telling you that there are 10,000 angels leaning over the balconies of heaven and they are holding their breath, wondering what will happen if this time these souls really hear. And there are 10,000 demons that are glaring up through the gates of hell and they are licking their lips, hoping, hoping that no one will pay attention. The air is charged with supernatural possibilities because all of heaven and all of hell knows that at that moment, eternity literally hangs in the balance. And when a preacher stands up on a Sunday morning with God's word in his hand and he opens his mouth, I am telling you that all of the cosmos are watching because they know that the most powerful place on the planet is a pulpit. Words have the power of life and death and your words, changed by his word, can change the world. Now, nobody knew that better than James. You got your Bibles with you this morning. If you do, crank them open to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And while you're turning there, just a reminder, all semester we have been in this series, the pursuit of wisdom. And we've been pursuing God's wisdom on things like sex and money and conflict and power. And today we get to hear God's wisdom on the tongue from the book of James. Now, you probably already know this as you're turning, James 3. You know that James was the preacher of the very first church that ever existed, the church in Jerusalem. And you know that James was actually the younger brother of Jesus during Jesus' ministry. James did not believe in him. But then came the cross, and then came the resurrection, and James' life was never the same, changed forever. He believed, and just like his big brother, he left the carpentry shop and he went to go be a preacher. Now, this letter of James is basically live streaming us into James' church service there in Jerusalem. We're getting to eavesdrop on his sermon. We're hearing James preach. And so he's up there at the front. Here's what I love. He still sounds like a carpenter. I mean, James is a practical guy and you can just see him up there preaching, blue collar, and, you know, he's got big old calloused hands. He's got steel-toed boots on. And as we listen, this sermon, this letter, it has two big points. Here's the two big points to his message. Number one, James says, it's not enough to talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. That's what James says. He says, you got you to work your faith. You got you to put some calluses on your Christianity. Faith without deeds is, is dead. So put some deeds with your doctrine. Put some muscle with your mouth. Put some walk with your talk. James chapter 1, verse 22. James says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, I used to teach a class on James here many years ago at Ozark. And I can remember one Friday night, uh, I came home, it was a little after five o'clock, and it had been a very long week. I was tired, I was exhausted, walking up the front steps to my house. I was met at the front door by my wife, Katie, and she handed me some jars and she said, here, she said, before you come inside, I want you to go take these jars to Velma. 
Now, Velma was uh, an elderly widow in our church. She was a shut-in. She was a sweet lady, very talkative lady. And I was tired. I'm an introvert. I'd had enough people for the week. And I didn't really want to take the jars to Velma, but I thought, all right, okay, I'll, I'll run these jars over, uh, but, but I'm not going to get caught in a, in a long conversation. And just as I'm turning, that's when Katie said, oh, oh, you should take the girls with you. Velma would love to see them. Now, my daughters, uh, Lydia and Clara, were six and three at the time, super cute, super talkative. And I knew that if they came along, Velma would talk to them for, you know, hour, two hours. And so I said, no. I don't want to take the girls. I'm tired. I just want to run the jars over there and I'll be back. We can do that a different time. And Katie said, no, you should take the girls over there. Velma's lonely. She will appreciate the visit. I said, no, it's been a long week. I'm too tired. I'm just, I'm not taking the girls over there. And Katie said, oh yes, you are. (laughs) And I said, oh no, I'm not. (laughs) So as I was buckling the girls into the car, I... (laughs) I was grumpy, all right? I'm clicking their car seats in and I'm slamming the door and I'm grumbling under my breath. I am taking my wife's name in vain. And sometimes I am not a very nice person. And, uh, and as I was driving to Velma's house uh, down Main Street, the Holy Spirit did this thing to me that he, that he sometimes does. I remember this very distinctly. It was at Main and right around 11th Street. He flashed this verse up onto the screen of my mind. And the verse was James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father sees as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And that verse cut me to the heart because I had lectured on that verse in James' class that very morning. I could diagram James chapter 1, verse 27 in the Greek But here was Velma, a real-life widow, right in front of me, and all I could do was grumble. And I don't know what the Greek word is for knucklehead, but I know sometimes I am one. And James knows that sometimes, hear me, Bible college students, sometimes we can learn so much about the Bible that we accidentally think we are obeying it. We can talk about prayer and holiness and generosity and love and not actually do any of it. And so James says, actions speak louder than words. It's not enough to talk to talk. You got to walk the walk. That's the first point of his sermon. Here's the second point of this sermon that we call the book of James. It's not enough just to walk the walk. You've got to talk the talk. That's point two. You got true faith pays attention to words more than any other book in the New Testament. The book of James focuses on our speech. James chapter one, verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. His religion is worthless. If you don't speak the way that Christ calls us to, don't call yourself a Christian. It is not enough just to walk the walk. You have to talk the talk. And James will actually mention our speech in every single chapter of his book, but he's going to give it the most attention right there in chapter three. You got your Bible open in front of you. We're going to walk through the first 12 verses of chapter three. And as we do, James, I think, is going to give us three truths about the tongue. Here's the first one. Your words are powerful. That's truth one. Your words are powerful. Look at what he says in chapter three, verse one. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. Because you know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, why, why does he say that? Well, James knows that the most powerful place on the planet is a pulpit. 
The words that you speak as a teacher, as a preacher, they hold immense power. And you cannot, you cannot stand here and use words lightly or foolishly or dangerously. You have to step carefully into a pulpit. You have to use words wisely and you have to use them well. And right here, listen to me, students, right here is the part I want you to catch. The very next thing James is going to say is this. You have a pulpit. Listen to what he says. Verse three, a bit in the mouth of a horse controls the whole horse. A small rudder on a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets a course in the face of the strongest winds and a word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. He's saying your words are powerful. Can I, can I give you 30 seconds of theology here? God if he's introvert, extrovert, he's probably on the extrovert side because God is a speaker. He's a talker. He's a communicator. Over 3,000 times in the Old Testament, you'll come across phrases like this, thus saith the Lord, the Lord spoke, the word of the Lord came to me. God's always talking. And when God speaks, stuff happens. His words aren't just informative, they are performative. The words don't just describe reality, they create reality. They like do things. When God speaks, stuff happens. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be daisies, and there were daisies. God said, let there be monkeys, and there were monkeys. God said, let there be sarcasm, and there was Chad Ragsdale. <laughs> When God speaks, stuff happens, I'm just telling you. And hear me, catch this, catch this, catch this. As humans, as humans, we are made in the image of God. You've learned this in class, the Imago Dei. And part of the Imago Dei is that you have the power of communication. It's a gift from God to us. Part of what makes us different from the animals is the ability to use words, a million different words in English alone. And in a distant echo of what God himself can do, when you use words... They have real world results. They are performative. When you talk, stuff happens. The words of a teacher can light a fire in a student's mind. The words of a songwriter can pierce your heart and draw tears from stone. The words, oh, they can be bricks, hard bricks that throw up walls between people. Words can be weapons that tear and gouge. Words can be bridges that suddenly start building connection between two strangers. Words can be hands that reach down and pull a person out of the pit of despair. One, one right word can literally throw open the doors of heaven for another human being. The one third, the one thing words cannot be is neutral. When my son Carl was 13 years old, he, he mostly used his words the way 13-year-old boys do. He quoted movie lines and sports statistics. He made lots of sound effects, and he liked to crack jokes. Hey, Dad, what's the difference between broccoli and boogers? I don't know. Kids won't eat broccoli. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> 13. But one weekend, I took my family to Silver Dollar City down in Branson. And we're walking through the park. It's near the end of the day. It was a very busy day. It was a hot summer evening and the streets were super crowded. And because I have six kids, we have six kids. Uh, and because I have six kids, I am in the habit of, of like constantly counting them, okay? Because I have left one behind before. <laughs> More than once. And uh, 
I'm at the back of our family pack and I'm counting. And all of a sudden I realize that Carl is missing. And I turn around to see where he's at. And 10 paces behind me, I see him. There's an older man sitting in a wheelchair. And the man is wearing a veteran's hat, a ball cap with the name of the war that he served in. And Carl had stopped and none of us had noticed to talk to this man. And Carl <laughs> leaned over and he offered this man his hand. And he said, thank you for your service to our country. And I watched as this older man looked up and I could see his eyes from where I was standing. They grew moist around the edges. And he reached up and he shook Carl's hand and he said very softly, you're welcome, young man. Thank you for saying that. And then Carl turned and started walking to catch up with us and I turned my head because my eyes were a little wet. And to that man, those words meant something. They did something. And yes, we, we all know that, of course, yes, there are words that actually can do things in other people. We know words like, thank you, and I love you, I'm sorry, I can help, you did great. How can I pray for you? Jesus loves you. We know those words have power, but listen, I'm talking about all of your words. When Proverbs says the tongue has the power of life and death, it's not just talking about some of your words, every single word. Whether you're talking about sports or clothes or whether you're quoting the office or whether you're talking about, you know, a professor with another student, whether you're making small talk with a stranger in the line, cashier line at Walmart, or you're talking to your parents on the phone, I'm telling you all, all of your words have power. Your words are never neutral. They are always moving people a little closer to life or a little closer to death. Your words are either a little bit of poison or a little bit of pure water. They're either a little bit of murder or they are a little bit of medicine. The one thing they never are is meaningless. You have never, ever in your life said one ordinary mundane word. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you speak because words matter. Words are not little utilitarian tools that you can use to make your life easier or more efficient and then they just dissolve off into thin air when you're done with them. No. Words are powerful, shimmering things and they carry eternity in them, even the ones you think are throwaway. Because you are made in the image of God. And that means you have the power to string letters together and make a word and string words together and make a sentence and string sentences together and make a life. Life and death. So let me ask you, Ozark, how is your preaching? You have a pulpit. Whether you end up as a preacher or youth minister or missionary or whether you end up as a lawyer, truck driver or a nurse, every morning, every morning when you step out of bed, you are stepping into a pulpit because your words are that powerful. That's the first truth from James. Here's the second. Your words are problems. Your words are problems. Let's listen to what James says here, starting in verse five. He says, a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Wow. Okay, James, tell us how you really feel. The tongue has the power of life and death. And James is saying, if it has a tendency, it's mostly death. There are so many mistakes you can make with your words. 
lying? Maybe it's an outright lie. Yeah, sure, I read the book when you didn't. Maybe it's just letting a little imprecision creep into your words. I'll be there at 5. You know it's going to be closer to 5.30. Boasting. Oh, sure, blatant smack talk on a basketball court, but there are more subtle ways. So I was up at 4 this morning reading my Bible, and I'm going to Professor So-and-So's house. I'm in his mentoring group, and maybe it's gossip or flattery. You know the difference? Gossip is saying something behind someone's back you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is, flattery is saying to their face what you wouldn't say behind their back. Maybe it's cursing. Sometimes, sometimes we use profane words in anger, impulse, lack of control. But I've actually heard some people say that they use them deliberately. I'm exercising my freedom in Christ. And they trivialize spiritual maturity as if swearing is somehow a fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Ephesians 5, no obscenity, foolish talk, of course, joking. And listen, it's not just the words that come out of our mouth. It's the words that come off of our fingers, texting and tweeting and arguments on Facebook that are not James 1.19, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And it is so easy for, for our words to be bitter or boastful, impatient or impure, untruthful or unkind. And James says, listen, he says, let me tell you the two biggest mistakes with the, with the tongue. He says, one of them is underestimating the number of conversational sins you commit every day. In chapter three, verse two, he says, we all make mistakes. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect, but we are not perfect. Researchers tell us that in one week, most people say enough words to fill a large 500 page book every week. That means in your average lifetime, that would be 3,000 of these. That is one and a half million pages. Proverbs 10, 19 says, where words are many, sin is not absent. Somebody said sin's most used entrance into your life is the eyes, but sin's most used exit is your mouth. And, and someday you're gonna give an account for every word. Here's a little thought experiment for you. If I did an audit, a full audit of your speech, I mean, if I chronicled every single word that you said over the last week, the last month, I typed them all up in a manuscript and I read them aloud here from the pulpit, what would that sermon sound like? I did something like that once, kept a journal, reviewed my speech at the end of every day. And I wanted to weep. So many times I let sin creep in. And so many times my tongue trampled the blood of Jesus. But here's the other mistake that we make. James says, underestimating the weight of our word sins. We tend to, we tend to minimize the consequences. We don't think it's, it's a big deal. Oh, sure, yeah, it's gossip. Yeah, I, I said a, a harsh word, but it's not adultery. It's not murder. Okay, yes, I grumbled, I complained. I'm not Hitler. It's not that bad. One time... When my kids were little, we were sitting down uh, for, for dinner and I don't remember what we were having for supper that night, but whatever it was, my kids didn't like it. I remember that. And they were already, before we even started eating, they were already complaining about the food on the table. Oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. And, um, and so before I prayed for the meal, I said, all right, kids, before, before we eat tonight, I want to tell you a little Bible story. Okay, all right, dad, all right, yeah. And you remember when the Israelites were wandering out in the wilderness for 40 years? Remember that story? Oh yeah, dad, we remember that one. That's a good one. And uh, you remember when all they had to eat was, was quail and, and manna? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
And some of the Israelites were, they were kind of like you, you know, they were, they were complaining about the food. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, we, we know that part, dad. And, and do you remember what God did to them kids? He killed them. <laughs> Eat your food. It was a quiet meal. <laughs> you want to shock your socks off? Read that story again. My word. All the Israelites did was complain. They just said some grumbling words. But apparently God takes your words very seriously. Your words can actually offend God. They can hurt him. James also says your words can hurt you. You are the person who is most shaped by your words. You hear them all, even the ones you say when nobody else is around, and they can damage your own soul. What does James say? He says they set the whole course of your life on fire. Your words hurt you, and you know your words hurt other people. Brian Jones is a preacher in Philadelphia. In one of his books, he tells this story. He says this. I, he says, I remember sitting in an airport lobby one afternoon waiting for my wife to return from a trip. My oldest daughter, Kelsey, was 14 months old at the time, bouncing on my knee as we waited, an elderly woman with a thick European, Eastern European accent sat down near us. And she and Kelsey laughed and played peekaboo for a long time. Later, she leaned over and smiled and said, you good father, you, you love, you, you touch, you hug, you, you play. Then her entire demeanor suddenly changed. And she said, I... I have no good father. He yelled, he hit, he said, stupid. I'm 79 years old. And because father, no lucky day, whole life, whole life. And she turned away, clutching her purse like it was a baby and rocking back and forth, mumbling to herself. He says, my eyes welled up as I thought about how long she had carried this wound. A few minutes later, my wife walked through the gate and after we kissed, we put our daughter in her stroller and began to walk off. I looked back to say goodbye to the woman and she waved her finger at me and she yelled, whole life, whole life. that deacon out deer hunting in the woods he was wrong words do not go in one ear and out the other they bury themselves deep in other people's hearts and they last forever can I ask you again how's your preaching if I typed up all your words would that be the sermon you'd want to preach if you're like me you'd be ashamed to have some of those words proclaimed from this pulpit for all to hear. Words, yes, yes, they're powerful, but they're a problem. So the real question here is this, is there any hope? Can I change my words? James says no one can tame the tongue. That sounds pretty hopeless. Is there any hope? And the answer is yes, here's the last truth. Your words are products. Their products, look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring. My brothers and sisters, can, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear frigs? Neither, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What's, what's he saying in these verses? He's saying this, listen. Your outward fruit comes from your inward nature. 
A fig tree bears frigs, a, a grapevine bears grapes, a salt spring produces salt water, and it's a troubled heart that produces troubled words. Words aren't actually the problem, they're just the product. Word problems are heart problems. Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yes, yes, we need new word habits, and that only happens when we get new hearts. Is there any way to get a new heart? Yes, yes, there is. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something, Mozart? This semester in chapel, we have had what I think might be the best run of sermons that I can remember in my 28 years here at Ozark. I mean, we've had some great preaching, great Bible content, great communication. Last Friday, Beth DeFazio came up to me. She said, uh, she said, hey, I know you're up to preach next week in chapel. And she said, man... You know, these guys, every, every preacher, they just keep raising the homiletical bar every week, every chapel. She said, so I have an idea for you. She said, John Carrer gave away $2,000 of his own money on the chapel stage. Isaac Shade cut his own hair on the chapel stage. So if I was you, I would pierce my own tongue on the chapel stage. <laughs> So right now, that is what is going to happen. Beth DeFazio is going to pierce her own tongue on this chapel stage. No, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Here is what's going to happen. When you walked in this morning, you were given a nail. Will you get that nail in your hand? Take that nail in your hand right now. And I just want you to hold it. And I want you to listen. The only way to get new words is to get a new heart. And the only way to get a new heart is through the gospel. So may I do this? May I preach the gospel to you? Ozark Christian College student, Ozark Christian College employee, you are a sinner. Your words are sinful, your actions are sinful, your heart is sinful. Jeremiah 17, your heart is deceitful above all else, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And you cannot change your tongue because you cannot change your heart. You are powerless. You are dead. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. But, but God, but God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus, absolutely every day, 24-7, without fail, walked the walk and he talked the talk. Every word that proceeded from his mouth was true and it was holy, it was kind and it was good, it was grateful and joyful. Every word was life itself. And then on that last night when he was betrayed and bound and flogged and handed over to the authorities, even, even though the charges against him were false, he said nothing. Isaiah 53 is a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Why? Why was Jesus silent? Why did he say nothing? He said no words because of my words. He took those nails and his hands were pierced and his feet were pierced and he hung on that cross. He bore God's judgment for the sins of my tongue and for the sins of your tongue. And because he bore in his body my sins, I no longer have to bear them. Because of his death, I have new life because his heart stopped beating. My heart started beating a new heart. If anyone was in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And every day I must preach myself the gospel. And I must remind myself that my tongue is pierced. My old way of speaking has been crucified with Christ and Christ has given me a new heart and he has given me new words. So would you keep that nail somewhere? This pulpit right here, it, it lives in my office. This is, that's where I brought it from. And uh, this, this large nail rests right there as a reminder that I am called to live a tongue-pierced life. Would you keep your nail on your dresser, on your keychain, carried around in your pocket, and before you speak a word, would you let it remind you that your tongue is now pierced for the one whose hands were pierced for you? Your words changed by his word, by the gospel itself. One last story and I'm done. A lady named Marianne Bird wrote an article once called The Whisper Test. It was a memoir of her childhood. Let me read to you what she wrote. She said, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others, a little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, garbled speech, when schoolmates asked me, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them that I had fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could ever love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Every year we had a hearing test. This was many many years ago. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class and finally it was my turn. And I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said to me in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. Now, Mary Ann Bird wrote that story for Guideposts magazine 50 years after she heard those seven words. 50 years in which she enjoyed a long and blessed marriage. 50 years in which she had four children and two grandchildren, 50 years in which she worked as a newspaper columnist in her hometown in Massachusetts, 50 years of joy and of purpose, 50 years in which she faithfully loved Jesus and served her church. And Mary Ann Bird would tell you that the seeds of that rich and full and vibrant life were sown in second grade. Really? Just seven words? Yes. Because the pulpit is the most powerful place on the planet and a teacher named Mrs. Leonard knew that every day when she stepped out of her bed she stepped into a pulpit and so do you and when you open your mouth every time 10,000 demons are glaring up from the gates of hell 
and 10,000 angels are leaning over the balconies of heaven holding their breath because they know that your words changed by his word could change the world. Let's pray.